This episode is sponsored by GiveWell. Imagine if every year you saved a person's life. One year you rescued someone from a burning building. The next year you saved someone from drowning. The year after that, you're out for dinner with your partner or maybe you're on a date. You notice someone across the room having a heart attack. You perform CPR and save their life. You would really be a hero. The truth is we have an opportunity to do this every single year of our lives just by targeting our donations to the most effective charities in the world. How is this possible? Three premises. Number one, if you're listening to this podcast, chances are you make more than 19500 US dollars per year post-tax and are therefore in the richest 10% of the world. Number two, we can do 100 times more good for others than for ourselves by focusing on the parts of the world most in need because a doubling of income will always increase subjective well-being by the same amount. And three, in the same way as the success of for-profit companies isn't normally distributed, some charities are vastly more effective than others. But how do you find the most effective charities? Well, since 2010, over 100,000 donors have used GiveWell to donate more than $1 billion. Rigorous evidence suggests that these donations will save over 150,000 lives and improve the lives of millions more. Here's how. GiveWell spends over 30,000 hours each year researching charitable organizations and only directs funding to a few of the highest impact, evidence-backed opportunities they've found. Here's the best part. Using GiveWell's research is free. GiveWell wants as many donors as possible to make informed decisions about high-impact giving. They publish all of their research and recommendations on their site for free with no sign-up required. They allocate your tax-deductible donation to the charity or fund you choose without taking a cut. I personally give to the Against Malaria Foundation, which distributes bed nets to prevent malaria at a cost of about $5 to provide one net. If you've never donated to GiveWell's recommended charities before, you can have your donation matched up to $100 before the end of the year or as long as matching funds last. Just go to givewell.org and pick podcast and the Jolly Swagman podcast at checkout. Make sure they know that you heard about GiveWell from the Jolly Swagman podcast to get your donation matched. That's givewell.org, select podcast, and then select the Jolly Swagman podcast at checkout. You're listening to the Jolly Swagman podcast. Here's your host, Joe Walker. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, swagmen and swagettes, welcome back to the show. It's been a minute. Apologies yet again for the radio silence. I have been a busy boy. It turns out startup life is unrelenting. Who knew? But this time, I really am back for good. But enough about me. You can expect a new episode of the Jolly Swagman podcast every fortnight or so, but a flurry of activity in the next few weeks as I release some epic conversations I've recorded recently. Also expect some writing of mine to be published over the Christmas break. To make sure you get notified when it's published, sign up to my mailing list at my website, thejspod.com. That's thejspod.com. Okay, that's enough housekeeping for now. I'll have more to say in coming episodes. Let's just get straight into this conversation, which I recorded in Boston on the 6th of December, 2022. I am here at Harvard today with Steven Pinker. Steve is a cognitive psychologist and one of the great public intellectuals of our age. He's authored many famous books, including The Blank Slate, The Better Angels of Our Nature and Enlightenment Now. But the first book of Steve's I read was The Sense of Style, a manual for good writing, which exemplifies its own advice and in which I learned that new information should come at the end of the sentence and that one of Steve's favorite Yiddish words is Bubermeiser. Uh, the last book of his I read is Rationality, which is going to be the focus of our conversation today. Steve, welcome to the Jolly Swagman podcast. Thank you. For fun, I'd like to start with writing. To my lights, you're one of the very best nonfiction writers in the English-speaking world. I'm not sure if you remember this, but four years ago, I asked you by email for advice on the process of writing a book, and you very kindly replied, quote, everyone is different in their writing habits, I've found. My method is to write sequentially from the first to the last sentence, and as intensively as possible, almost all day, seven days a week till I'm done, end quote. 
Could you elaborate on why that approach works best for you? And, and does any of your research into the human mind support that approach or is it just arbitrary? Well, it couldn't support it in this if uh, people differ. So I couldn't root it in any universal property of human cognition if one person varies from another. I suspect it's some combination of motivation, uh, memory, and personality. In, in my case, uh, the, the cognitive rationale is that writing a book involves coordinating many considerations. There's the uh, line of argument, the actual content. There are the sources that I uh, feel ought to be represented or that I must consult. There's the narrative arc of the prose itself. There's the sentence-by-sentence -sentence construction. There's the connection to other chapters uh, in the book. <clears throat> I find that when I have all of those swarming around my head at the same time, then uh, I can do my best to satisfy them all. If I have to put it down and come back to it, then I've got to reassemble that whole collage. So I like the, uh, the intensity of having everything in my mind uh, for a, a continuous enough stretch that I can actually produce a, a, what I think is a coherent bit of writing. Right. Yeah, that, that does stand out to me about your books. They're very internally coherent. It's uh, And often that doesn't happen on the first pass. They're in, uh, I put my books through at least six drafts before the uh, copy editor sees it, and then there's another couple of drafts. Uh, it, uh, I, I find, well, I, I shouldn't speak for everyone, but I'm not smart enough to both uh, have a coherent line of, of, of presentation of content and to make it readable and structured. I find I have to get the ideas down first, and then I can devote more attention to style, and that's why I do it in multiple passes. Sometimes I'll rearrange chapters or, or paragraphs or sentences. Uh, there are people, like newspaper columnists, who don't have that, that luxury, who uh, tap out an article, then touch it up for punctuation and, and press send. I'm not one of them, and I suspect most people are not, but it is the gift that leads some people to become uh, pundits, bloggers, newspaper columnists. On average, how many days or weeks or months does it take you to produce a first draft? It uh, varies a lot by book. Some of them, like The Sense of Style, went relatively smoothly, partly because I'd been thinking about the issues for a long time and there was uh, less factual material that had to be looked up and checked. Whereas for a book like The Better Angels of Our Nature on the history of violence... Uh, I had to educate myself in a number of fields that I was not trained in, history, um, international relations, and um, um, affective neuroscience, that is the brain bases of emotions. So that, that took a, a great deal more. The sense of style, I think I had a first draft in three months, uh, Better Angels of Our Nature, it took a year uh, or so for the first draft. Let's talk about rationality. You define rationality as the use of knowledge to attain goals. And you take knowledge in turn to be justified true belief, a, a definition kind of from psycho, uh, philosophy 101. My first question is, is observation the ultimate source of our knowledge of nature? In other words, are you an empiricist in the philosophical sense? Um, not in that strict sense, certainly in the sense that uh, you can't do it from the armchair. If that, that is, you can't deduce the existence of giraffes and the uh, Himalayas and um, Alpha Centauri from first principles. Uh, you, you have no choice but to observe the world. But uh, uh, on the other hand, science doesn't just consist of a long list of sensory observations, particularly since a lot of the observations that scientists make come from exotic conditions of experiments and, and uh, high-tech instruments. Ultimately, what we want is an explanation of the world in terms of deeper principles than what we see with our own eyeballs, but constantly verified for verisimilitude and accuracy by empirical observations. So it, uh, certainly the, uh, the, the freshman first week dichotomy between rationalist and empiricist approaches to science would be far too simplistic. What, in your view, is the correct normative model of rationality? Uh, Enrico Petrarca wrote a review of the book in which he argued that you implicitly rejected Gigerenz's ecological rationality as a normative model. Is that fair? And, and am I correct in placing you as an apologist 
in the great rationality debate, or do you kind of eschew labels there? Uh, I think I would eschew labels. I'm not sure what, uh, what the the um, suggestion means that as an apologist for for what. It's but, kind of in the middle of the Meliorists and the Panglossians. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, I don't I'm know. taking you, that label from... Okay, from, apologist, I didn't, in that context, uh, is not particularly intuitive. Apologist no, it's means a defender of a particular position. Yeah. Well, I don't think that Gigerenzer's ecological rationality was meant as a normative model. Uh, it was meant as a descriptive or psychological model. Although Gigerenzer uh, is... I, uh, a critic of the idea that uh, certain models that were are taken as normative uh, without question, such as um, the use of, say, of, of base rates as Bayesian priors. So, for example, that the statistical prevalence of a disease in a population is equated with your a priori credence that a patient has the disease before checking their, their signs and symptoms and test results. That was a background assumption in a lot of the research purporting to show that humans are not Bayesian. Gigerenzer, for example, criticizes the idea that frequency uh, in, a, in a population is a suitable Bayesian prior. But I don't think that he would criticize the very idea that there should be normative models that are uh, distinct from the psychological processes that a typical um, human uses. So I don't see ecological rationality, which, just to be clear, uh, has nothing to do with you know, being green or hugging a tree, but in, in Gigerenzer's uh, definition, and that of John Tooby and Lita Cosmides, just refers to the way that reasoning uh, takes place in a uh, natural human environment. So that's what ecological rationality is, but almost by definition, it's not a normative model. Yeah, although I guess you could say that the you know, Gigerenz's adaptive toolkit of fast and frugal heuristics perform better in certain environments than rational choice theory. Well, yes, but that would be a... Um, as soon as you use the word better, you're um, invoking some standard or benchmark against which to compare ecological rationality, which means that ecological rationality itself is not that benchmark. That is, as soon as you ask the, ask the question, does ecological rationality work? Does it lead to... Uh, correct or justify conclusions, well, where do those correct or justify conclusions come from? Well, they come from a normative model. So you can't get away from normative models as soon as you ask the question, uh, does, uh, do, uh, how well does ecological rationality work? So what do you think the benchmark is? Well, the, the, one of the reasons that I defined rationality as the use of knowledge to pursue a goal, and one of the reasons that my book Rationality is divided into chapters is that there are different normative models for different goals. Depends what you're trying to attain. So if you're trying to um, end up with a quantitative uh, estimate of your degree of credence in a hypothesis, then um, a Bayes' rule is the way to go, is the suitable normative model. If you're uh, trying to derive uh, true conclusions from true premises, then formal logic is the uh, relevant normative model. So the normative models are always relevant to a goal, and they are um, also um, suitable to, to an environment in which some kinds of knowledge are or are not available. Your graduate advisor, Roger Brown, once read a review of Lolita, arguing that it was a trove of linguistic and psychological insights. I'm curious, are there any works of fiction that provide, in your view, incredibly rich depictions of your view of human rationality? Um, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, both because uh, Roger Brown is, doesn't, doesn't get the attention that he deserves as a, a pioneer in psycholinguistics and social psychology and a, and a gifted writer. Uh, I, I did write an, an obituary of his that's available on my website. Uh, and his review of Lolita is uh, a, a masterwork published in a psychology journal, a journal of book reviews, which the editor agreed to accept as long as there were psychological implications. And uh, Roger's review of Lolita is, is a true gem. So um, let's see. Well, I'll, I'll start close to home. The, uh, I, I learned a lot from two, at least two novels by uh, my, my other half, uh, the philosopher and novelist Rebecca Goldstein. Uh, the, her first novel, The Mind-Body Problem, uh, featuring a graduate student in philosophy doing a dissertation on the mind-body problem who also faces her own mind-body problem, 
I'll, I'll uh, leave it to readers to identify what that, that, that problem is. Uh, but that actually exposed me to ideas in philosophy, including, uh, for example, the, the, the uh, uh, concept of mathematical realism in philosophy. Um, the, uh, the other protagonist of the novel is the husband of the graduate student in philosophy, Noam Himmel, a uh, brilliant mathematician. And uh, in the course of their dialogues, it comes out that he, like a majority of mathematicians, it turns out, believes that mathematics is not just the manipulation of symbols by formal rules, the, the formalist approach, uh, although some do uh, adhere to that. But a majority of mathematicians uh, believe that mathematics is about something, some abstract um, feature of reality that they are discovering, not inventing. It's just an example of one of the philosophical ideas that came out in the dialogue. The other one uh, uh, is her novel, 36 Arguments for the Existence of God, a work of fiction, uh, which is a, in my, in my not-so-unbiased view, a, uh, a brilliant and, and, and very funny novel uh, about, the, um, uh, about religion and belief in God. And the title alludes to a uh, book written by the protagonist, a psychologist of religion. His book has, his best, surprise bestseller had an appendix listing 36 classic arguments for the existence of God and their refutations. And the novel, a bit, I guess, postmodernly or, or, or self-referentially, has as its appendix the appendix to the fictitious character's uh, bestseller, when it came to uh, recording the audiobook, Audible had uh, Rebecca, uh, had me narrate the, each of the 36 arguments and Rebecca narrate the uh, responses. But it's, um, it's actually, I think, the best guide to the philosophy of belief in the existence of God. And it is woven into a genuinely uh, funny and moving story. Any works of fiction or poems that teach Bayes' rule? Oh, um, there are sayings. I, I bet there are, and it would, might take me a while to get to them just because it is an, uh, uh, an aspect of rationality that can be rediscovered if you think about it deeply enough. But certainly the, there are quotes from um, David Hume, not in, in fiction. Uh, Carl Sagan's uh, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. The advice given to medical students, if you hear... Uh, hoofbeats outside the window don't expect a zebra. Um, I think it pops up in a lot of folk wisdom. And I bet someone who's more familiar with fiction than I was could identify scenes from, from novels in which it came up. Have you heard of Pete Hine? Pete Hine? Yeah. Yes, uh, his uh, humorous little aphorisms. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember that from when I was a, an undergraduate or a high school student. Yeah, he calls them, these little poems, he calls them grooks. There's one that reminds me of, of Bayesianism. It's called The Road to Wisdom. It goes, The road to wisdom, well, it's plain and simple to express, er and er and er again, but less and less and less. That's excellent. In fact, I am familiar with that, uh, and I wish it had popped into my mind as I was writing Rationality, because it's a, it's a great quote, yes. In Rationality, there's a wonderfully lucid explanation of Bayes' theorem. Could you summarize that explanation briefly? Sure. Um, it sounds very scary when you call it a theorem, but uh, the goal is simply how do you uh, how do you assess your degree of belief in a, a, a hypothesis in light of evidence? And the key insight of the uh, eponymous Reverend Bayes is that your degree of belief can be treated like a mathematical probability, that is a number between zero and one, and the warrant of your belief by the evidence can be expressed as a conditional probability. That is, what is not just what is the, uh, an analogy to what are the chances of something happening, but if such and such is true, then what are the chances of something, such and such happening? You just import that bit of mathematics. It's almost lesson two in any introduction to probability. And um, you uh, equate degree of belief with probability warrant of that degree of belief by evidence as conditional probability and Bayes' uh, rule kind of falls out, just a, a little bit of high school algebra. What it basically says is uh, what you want, the, the, the desired output is how much should I believe in this hypothesis the, on a scale of zero to one? 
say from zero to 100 if you just multiply it by 100. And the way you can calc, you should estimate that by three other um, concepts, each one of which can be quantified as a probability. The first is your prior. That is, before you even looked at the evidence, how confident were you in the hypothesis based on everything you believe, everything you know, right up until the moment of peering at the new evidence. So those are the priors. That's number one. Number two is the likelihood. That is, if the hypothesis is true, what are the chances that you'd be observing the evidence that you are now observing? You multiply those two together and you divide by the commonness of the evidence. That is, how likely it is, is it to observe that evidence across the board, whether your idea is true or false. So in the case of, say, diagnosing a disease, um, some symptom that is extremely common, like uh, you know, headaches and nausea and weakness and even back pain, since there's so many different conditions that can cause that, you know, like in the kind of speed-mumbled proviso at the end of ads for drugs, they, they always go through a list of, of symptoms, and it seems to be the same list of symptoms for every drug, uh, just showing how common it is. That go, since that goes in the denominator, big denominator, small fraction, what it means is if you're looking at a symptom that is uh, very, very common, you should not have a lot of credence in any particular diagnosis. So anyway, those are the, the three terms that go into Bayes' rule. It, uh, again, it sounds more complicated than it is. The reason that it, people have to be reminded of it is that, uh, as Tversky and Kahneman point out, and, and I think it's true despite Gigerenzer's pushback, we do have a tendency to discount the priors, the uh, first term in the equation, that is, uh, how likely is the hypothesis to be true based on the background statistics and we glom on to the likelihood, the stereotype. The, um, we tend to confuse P implies Q with Q implies P. That is, if, for example, if an art major tends to uh, like spending summers in uh, Florence, we assume that someone who likes to spend summers in Florence must be an art major. And that would be overemphasizing the likelihood namely the probability that if you are an art major, you enjoy spending summers in, in Florence neglecting something that is highly relevant, namely what percentage of students are art majors in the first place? Uh, someone who spends, likes to spend summers in Florence, they're actually more likely to be a psychology major uh, despite the stereotype simply because there are probably 50 psychology majors for every uh, art history major. And we tend to not think that way unless we're reminded. What do you make of Jimmy Savage's distinction between small worlds, that is, worlds in which you can look before you leap, and large worlds, that is, worlds in which you have to cross that bridge when you come to it? In his book, The Foundations of Statistics, he says it would be, quote-unquote, utterly ridiculous to apply rational choice theory and Bayesianism to large worlds. Well, that, uh, you know, that's certainly true in the sense that there's, uh, it can be a vast amount of um, knowledge that we don't have and, and can't easily get. The world is complex. There are multiple contingencies. Uh, no one but God knows them all. And so it, it, it can be foolish to act as if you know all of the relevant probabilities when the world is just too complex to allow them to be estimated. So that is certainly true. How do we make sense of Tetlock's super forecasters then? Are they not operating in large worlds? Maybe maybe you could say, in the words of of John Kay and Mervyn King, that they're solving like puzzle, very contained puzzles as opposed to open-ended mysteries? Or, or is there something maybe like statistically deceptive about Briar scores? Or how do you square that circle? Oh, that they, um, well, they're the, the, they are the exception. Um, uh, I suppose you could call it the exception that proves the rule in the sense of testing it, namely by immersing themselves in uh, relevant data that most of us tend to ignore. They uh, do a not bad job. Uh, of course, they themselves would be the first to admit that they can only give a probabilistic estimate, that their performance can't be ascertained by one prediction, but only by the entire portfolio of predictions, because even the best of them will get some things wrong. And uh, as Tetlock notes, their prediction, their, their um, accuracy falls off to chance uh, beyond a, a time horizon of about five years, uh, including the best of them. But you've, you've in a sense, answered your own question by uh, by the fact that the forecasting tournaments have concrete benchmarks, and we actually can answer the question, did the prediction 
turn out correctly or not. The fact that it does turn out correctly at a greater rate than chance shows that there are, uh, we can know enough about uh, relevant aspects of the world that we're not just throwing darts. Yeah, I guess it depends how you interpret those results. Like maybe you say that it's, they're somehow like less interesting than truly large world scenarios. Well, they are they are pretty large worlds. I mean, they do make predictions about whether whether a war will take place or a recession, um, uh, election results, and you know, the, the, those are pretty large and consequential. So the fact that now the thing is that super forecasting is really hard. So uh, because it's these are, are large worlds, but not impossible. And Savage writing when in the fifties, uh, this was our, our state of knowledge. Uh, is, is vastly richer than, than it was in that time in our means of uh, estimating things. Again, they are, even the best of super forecasters is nowhere near perfect and falls to chance within five years. So he's right that this is extraordinarily difficult. But it would be too pessimistic to say it's impossible with any data on any time scale. You spoke about the three different terms in the Bayesian formula. Where do priors come from? If I think of your book, The Blank Slate, is there, is there a sense in which like some priors might be innate? For example, babies would tend to focus on humans in the room or I think Gigerenza talks about a, an illusion where people feel as if like a source of light is always above them. Yes, and uh, you know, there, uh, as with all nature, nurture, um, uh, tensions, it's very hard to tease them apart in our world because, of course, we grew up in a world in which the illumination does come from above whether from the sun and the sky and the moon or from artificial lighting. The, uh, you could test that by bringing up uh, animals in an environment in which the source of illumination was always from below, that is maybe you know, an illuminated uh, uh, floor, to see whether those animals had more difficulty um, perceiving shapes when the light did come from above, the mirror image of, of uh, our situation. But nonetheless, it is going back to the uh, conceptual point Yes, there probably are some priors that are innate. That is what natural selection would tend to select for, so that we don't start from um, scratch. Each one of us, as a baby, we at least know uh, what to attend to, what to concentrate on, what kinds of uh, correlations to pay attention to. And there is a school in cognitive psychology of Bayesians, such as uh, my sometime collaborator, Josh Tenenbaum at MIT, who makes the... Um, uh, implicit equation, at least, between Bayesian priors and innate knowledge. That's what innate knowledge would consist of. That, that's, I mean, he, did, he wasn't the first to make that equation, but, um, uh, but it is a, a natural one. And it's an empirical question what, uh, how rich those priors are, that is, how much innate knowledge we have. What is the most pervasive cognitive bias? Probably the my side bias, at least that's the claim of Keith Stanovich in his book, The Bias That Divides Us. He um, suggests it's the only bias that is independent of intelligence. All the others, if you're smarter, you're less vulnerable to them, but not from my side bias. You just become a more clever litig litigator or av advocate and come up with better and better arguments for the um, sacred beliefs of your tribe. Is the evolution of my side bias better explained by multi-level selection theory than by selfish gene theory? Um, no, I don't, don't, don't think so. Um, I, I uh, have pretty strong opinions on, on multi-level selection theory, which I think is, uh, is uh, incoherent. I have an article called The False Allure of Group Selection. Um, you can you know, on edge.org, edge yeah, it's also on, linked on my website. Uh, group selection, of course, being one of the higher levels in the so-called multi-level selection. Um, no, because you're, for one thing, um, a lot of the my side bias is the esteem that you get within your group, and uh, conversely, the um, ostracism and uh, even social death that uh, comes from embracing a, a, a heterodox belief or denying a sacred belief. So that certainly affects the, 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 uh, the, the status and the, uh, ultimately the reproductive success of the individual. And also, even in cases where you're making your group more formidable, that uh, as long as the interests of yourself and the group don't diverge, the interests of the group and the interests of the individual are the same. So you don't need group selection to 
uh, account for it, even even if your arguments are making are increasing the, the the prestige or influence of your group. By doing that, they're influencing your own uh, ultimate uh, uh, influence. This question is intended in a spirit of, of sheer playfulness. So, like me, you locate yourself on the center left of the political spectrum. For example, you're on on record as being the second largest donor to Hillary Clinton uh, at Harvard. But within academia, you're often attacked for not being left-wing enough. For example, there was like a a pathetic attempt to remove you from the Linguistic Society of America's list of distinguished fellows in in 2020. So my question is, why not bite the bullet and move to the centre-right, at least socially? Hang out with the the Neil Fergusons of the world where you'll be at less risk of cancellation. Or or is a form of my-side bias holding you back? Well, it could be, and I'm as with all cases of the my side bias, I might be the the, the last person to ask because <laughs> uh, I would be so immersed in it that I couldn't objectively uh, tell. And Neil Ferguson is a friend, and I do, uh, you know, I am um, uh, binary <laughs> that I I do uh, being here at Harvard University in the People's Republic of Cambridge, as it's sometimes called. I am immersed every day in. Uh, uh, not just left of center, but often often hard left uh, colleagues and students. But at the same time, I uh, I do um, uh, pal around with people people on the right, libertarians. Not as many um, national conservatives of the Trump variety, but uh, but certainly I have a lot of friends who are right right of center. Well, I try not to uh, um, uh, uh, fall into a single tribe because it uh, it clouds your judgment. It maximizes the my side bias. I can't claim, uh, just as no one can claim to be free of it, but I do take steps to to minimize it. I expose myself to opinions on different parts of the, the political spectrum. I subscribe uh, to the New York Times and The Guardian, but also to the Wall Street Journal and The Spectator. Um, and uh, it, try to pick and choose the ideas that I think are uh, uh, best supported. And, and over the course of my career, I've changed my mind on a number of things. If I had to guess, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you would pick the availability bias as the second most pervasive bias after my side bias. Yeah, I think if I'm if forced to choose, I, I'd probably land on that. Could this perception just be the result of the availability bias itself? Like maybe there's something more salient about examples of the availability bias because they seem more blatantly stupid, whereas in comparison, representativeness is more more contested. Like you could say the Linda problem substantially evaporates when it's presented in frequentist terms. Uh, no, that, that's right, and that, that's why I would be hesitant to identify, to, to rank the different biases uh, indeed, it's a, a, a common question. What is the most, you know, people ask me, what's the most influential book you've ever read? What's the most influential thinker that's, that's uh, shaped your, your ideas? And it always sets me back on my heels because I could easily name a bunch of influential books or influential people or formative experiences. But it, uh, you know, unless you've actually uh, sat down and ranked them, which is not something that you naturally do, it's, there's no ready answer to that style of question. Uh, likewise, yeah, maybe availability isn't second. Maybe it's third. So, and and maybe it is the uh, all the examples of uh, fear of nuclear power because of Chernobyl, fear of going into the water because of a publicized shark attack. Uh, those themselves are are highly available, and maybe that's why it's a tempting first answer, but it may not be the the best answer. In terms of the Linda problem, uh, that is, you give a uh, I don't know how many of your listeners are familiar with it, um, and there aren't a lot. There, there aren't a lot of Lindas anymore. That's a kind of a baby boomer uh, female name. So we can also call it the Amanda problem. This is the stereotype of a, a kind of social justice warrior, philosophy major. Is she more likely to be a, um, a, a feminist bank teller or a bank teller? Maybe even we have to replace bank teller now because there aren't, any, aren't as many bank tellers as there, there were in the 1970s. Crypto trader. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the... Uh, and the the uh, fallacy called conjunction fallacy is people tend to say it's likely that she's a feminist bank teller than a bank teller, even though that violates the axiom of probability that the probability of A and B must be less than or equal to the probability of B alone. And it's thought to be driven by um, stereotype, stereotypical thinking. It's a primary, uh, a prime violation of, of uh, Bayesian reasoning. Uh, and 
Um, Gerd Gigerenzer has uh, suggested that it goes away when instead of um, asking the question, what is the probability that that Linda is a feminist bank teller, you say, imagine 100 people like Linda, what proportion of them are feminist bank tellers? Turns out, and I, I repeated this observation in from Gigerenzer in, in my book, How the Mind Works. Turns out it's not exactly right. And there was a adversarial collaboration between Kahneman and one of Gigerenzer's collaborators, uh, Ralph Hertwig, where they actually agreed on a design of a set of experiments to see who's right and who's wrong. And it turns out the conjunction fallacy is greatly reduced when you reframe it from the probability of a single event, Linda, to frequency in a sample, women like Linda, it doesn't go away, to my own surprise. So I don't want to say Gigerenzer, I mean, that Kahneman had the the last laugh because it's certainly true that it was reduced. Um, As as Kahneman and Tversky uh, noted themselves, uh, to my surprise, it doesn't go away. And uh, and, uh, I think I was probably as surprised as, as Hertwig. So, so we shouldn't uh, uh, conclude that it's just an artifact of our inability to conceptualize a, a propensity of an individual as a probability. Though I think that, is a, that, that indeed is a factor. Do you think Michael Lewis's book, The Undoing Project, was fair to Gigerenza? Um I don't think it explained his um, challenge well enough. So in that sense, in that sense no. And therefore, you you could probably say that Gigerenza remains like underrated compared with with Kahneman. Absolutely, yes. In the mainstream, that I, I think that is right. Yes, it, it does. And uh, Gigerenza has a number of important um, lessons, in, in, including the psychological naturalness of uh, frequencies as opposed to single event probabilities. The fact that there are ways of making probability more intuitive that ought to be maximized in education, in public health messaging, that the uh, normative models that we, uh, in in cognitive and social psychology, tend to assume are the correct benchmarks ought themselves to be questioned. Um, That is, is the textbook Bayesian analysis really the, quote, correct answer? Um, uh, likewise for, for many of the uh, classic demonstrations of human irrationality. It could be that the, um, uh, the, 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 the Joe or Jane on the street is being more rational than the experimenters who do devise the challenge. To what extent are the availability heuristic and the representativeness heuristic the same thing? Um, like, w- Maybe they share an underlying mechanism to with memory or the structure of our neural network. They're, they are probably related. Um, the availability bias tends to be defined in terms of um, particular uh, events or occurrences, representativeness more of a generic stereotype. Now, they are related in that our stereotypes tend to come from an accumulation of, of uh, examples. And... For decades, there's been a debate in cognitive psychology as to whether stereotypes uh, consist of like one generic representation with some open slots, like your stereotype of a a dog is is like some sort of morphed composite of all the dogs kind of superimposed in averages, or whether stereotype thinking comes from exemplars, that is lots of examples that are all in the brain and a process that accesses them by um, comparing an instance simultaneously against all the instances stored in memory. So that debate on conceptual representation in cognitive psychology would be relevant to the question of whether availability and representativeness are uh, the, the, the same heuristic in terms of their psychological mechanism or uh, distinct. This next question is also intended in a spirit of sheer playfulness. So... Could the temptation to extrapolate the long pace, that is the post-1945 decline of wars among great powers and developed states, could extrapolating it into the future simply be the result of representativeness bias, that is judging likelihood by similarity? So to explain by analogy, Andre Schleifer and Nikolai Genioli have some work where they apply 
representativeness to extrapolation in asset markets. And they look at how people predict future uncertain events like rises in asset prices by taking a short history of data and then asking what broader picture the history is representative of. Uh, and when people focus on such representativeness, Schleifer argues they don't pay enough attention to the possibility that the recent history is generated by chance or a random process rather than by their, their model. So to continue the analogy, if a company has a few years of earnings growth, investors might conclude that the past history is representative of an underlying earnings growth potential when maybe it's nothing more than random. Uh, it is possible, and uh, because we're talking about a stochastic process in the sense of uh, being probabilistic over time, and in The Better Angels of Our Nature, I, I raised that question and tried to deal with it as best I could uh, with some pretty crude statistics, namely if you estimate the underlying rate of war uh, up to the moment that historians identified as the onset of the long peace, namely at the end of World War II, and then uh, estimate what is the chances that we would observe a rate of war as, as low or lower uh, as we have observed since then. Um, uh, in a, a, a rather simple kind of chi-square analysis, it's, it turns out to be extraordinarily uh, unlikely uh, on the assumption that the probability has not changed. Now, that was uh, the best I could do in, in uh, 2010, um, uh, and it's not the, the best statistical analysis. Since then, though, uh, three different statistical teams have um, used a f fairly recent and, and more exotic technique or a family of techniques called change point analysis. Namely, if you were not to identify a priori what your change point is, and, and there is a, always a danger that if that is identified post hoc, then you could just find, eyeball the point at which a um, density of events seems to change and compare before and after, and that could be lead to a statistical artifact. In the case of the long piece, I argued that, that it isn't post hoc, that, that the World War II really did qualitatively change a lot. But still, uh, a skeptic could say, well, maybe you only are saying that because that's when the frequency of war appeared to change. So in change point analysis, you can, without priors, uh, look at a time series and estimate whether there is some, likely to be some change in the underlying uh, generator, that is, the in this case, how likely are nations to go to war. All three of them I did identify a change point. They differed somewhat in where, when, when the change point was, whether it was the late 40s, the early 50s. One of them thought, uh, uh, the third identified the 60s as being the change point, but all three did identify a change in the underlying frequency. Their uh, underlying uh, parameter that would generate the frequencies, that is, the propensity of nations to go to war, so that ups the confidence that this isn't simply uh, over-interpreting a uh, temporary stochastic uh, paucity in the, in the uh, observed data. I have two quick miscellaneous questions, and then finally I want to ask you about innovation. So you consider Herb Simon's essay on the architecture of complexity to be one of the deepest you've ever read. Why is it mandatory reading for any intellectual? Oh, it, um, well, it, it, explains and unifies so many disparate phenomena in a, uh, according to a principle that is fairly easy to grasp, but that, uh, that, that has far-reaching implications, that being that any complex system is likely to be composed of um, a relatively small number of subsystems, each one of which is com itself composed of a relatively small number of subsystems. And that is the uh, only way in which complexity can be self-sustaining because a, a system that's just built from um, scratch out of hundreds or thousands of parts would be vulnerable to any um, degradation or damage bringing the whole thing crashing down. Whereas if a system is more modular, hierarchically organized, such as the body uh, consisting of systems, which consist of organs, which consist of tissues, which consist of cells, which consist of uh, organelles, then um, one part can be damaged without bringing the whole thing down. And this is true at, at, uh, of societies, of corporations, of universities, of uh, galaxies. Although Simons concedes that a possible limitation is that these might be the systems that are most amenable to human understanding. So there, there is a possibility that there's a uh, ascertainment bias. 
You've been critical of the effective altruism movement for lurching too far from its global health and development roots towards cause areas like preventing existential catastrophe and unaligned AI. I'm curious, what are your specific object-level critiques of long-termism? Well, yeah, as, as a number of people have noted, effective altruism has gotten weird. Um, that is, uh, prioritizing the existence of trillions of consciousnesses uploaded to a galaxy-wide cloud as opposed to reducing infectious disease and hunger uh, now. Um, uh, among the problems are that um, our knowledge, uh, our ignorance increases exponentially with distance into the future. That is, 10 things might happen tomorrow. Uh, for each one of those 10 things, another 10 things could happen the day after tomorrow, and so on. Uh, if our confidence in any of those things is less than one, then our confidence in, in anything several years out quickly falls to asymptotes to, uh, to zero. And to make decisions now about what might happen in um, uh, a million years, a thousand years, even a hundred years, even 10 years is uh, probably a fool's errand. Uh, that there's a lot of, uh, and therefore it can be uh, highly immoral to make decisions now based on a scenario of which we are completely ignorant uh, at the expense of things that we know now, namely people are starving and dying of disease who could be spared. Uh, a lot of the scenarios having to do with superintelligence, I think, rely on a completely incoherent notion of intelligence. I explain this in, in a few pages in Enlightenment now, that uh, the notion of, of uh, artificial general intelligence or superintelligence is a, a kind of uh, mystical magic. It's not rooted in any mechanistic conception of how intelligence works. And the, the, uh, many of the scenarios envisioned, such as a perfect um, understanding of our connectome and the dynamic processes of the brain that could be uploadable to a cloud, are, uh, are fantastical. Namely, they are uh, almost uh, almost certain never to take place as opposed to almost certain to take place given our the scale of the problem, the vastness of our ignorance, the formidability of the technical challenges, together with our philosophical ignorance as to whether a uh, replica of our connectome running uh, in the cloud would even be conscious or if it did, whether it would have our consciousness. So the moral, since morality is uh, driven above all by uh, consciousness, that is by, by suffering or flourishing, to, be, to, to make decisions based on the enormous philosophical uncertainty of where our consciousness uh, resides, together with the, I think, technological naivete of how, uh, how, how likely these scenarios are to unfold, uh, I think means that is an example of EA going off the rails. Now, by the way, it doesn't mean we shouldn't worry about real existential risks like nuclear war or, or uh, pandemics. But there, the um, short to medium term and the long term uh, align and long term long termism is irrelevant. It would really suck if um, all life were to be extinguished by a nuclear uh, accident, even if 99% were. Uh, this is something we should work very, very hard to prevent. And the um, hypothetical disembodied souls in the cloud in uh, a million years is kind of beside the point. You should still work to end, to prevent nuclear war or a highly damaging pandemic. I have two final quick questions on innovation. In a paper called Innovation in the Collective Brain, Michael Mutakrishna and Joe Henrik argue that innovations aren't the work of lone geniuses, but rather emerge from our societies and social networks or what they call the collective brain. Individuals who seem like heroic inventors can really be thought of as the products of serendipity, recombination, and incremental improvement. What do you make of their argument? Oh, it's a false dichotomy. I mean, it's, it's just obviously true that no um, uh, solitary genius can invent anything from scratch, and no one ever said that that, that, that was true. So this is a true um, a, a straw figure. Um, but nor is it true that um, innovators are commodities, that any old person can invent uh, anything. There are genuine differences in intelligence, uh, that have measurable consequences in the likelihood of producing an innovation. We know this from um, um, Camilla Benbow and David Lubinsky's studies of mathematically precocious youths. They really do end up uh, uh, with, uh, with more patents than non-precocious youth. 
and uh, together with the personality traits that are necessary for innovation, such as the conscientiousness, self-control, um, perseveration. Um, so this is a, a complete, uh, an utter false dichotomy. You need brilliant people working in networks of sharing information and building on past advances to get true innovation. If we are reasonable beings, why do certain true ideas that seem so obvious in hindsight take so long to, to appear in the historical record? For example, arguably probability theory um, or the, just simply the idea that all human beings are equal? Oh, uh, our, our instincts militate against them. That is, we, we do have um, tribalism that goes against the idea of universal equality. We have uh, you know, availability and uh, representatives and so on that push back against probability, at least as abstract, formal, all-purpose uh, um, symbolic formulas. When it comes to our own uh, everyday lives, when it comes to giving equal consideration within the clan, when it comes to assessing probability of things happening to us that we experience, we're not so bad. But generalizing them using an abstract formula depends on um, networks of global cooperation that make other people, uh, bring other people into our circles of uh, sympathy uh, and depend on the accumulation of knowledge, including tools such as literacy, mathematics that multiply the abilities that we have. And, and uh, these took time to develop as transportation, communication, literacy, written records, uh, education were uh, built piece by piece over time. Steve Pinker, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. Two quick things before you go. First, for links, show notes, and the episode transcript, go to my website, thejspod.com. That's thejspod.com. And finally, if you think the conversations I'm having are worth sharing, I'd be deeply grateful if you sent this episode or the show to a friend. Message it to them, email them, drop a link in a WhatsApp group. The primary way these conversations reach more people is through my listeners sharing them. Thanks again. Until next time, ciao.